It's Friday, October 15th, and you've got the best of the best of the week of Oz in your ears. So let's just go get as good as we can. The Wall Street Journal says that corporate America finished the second quarter of 2010 with near-historic profits. Now there's a piece of economic leisure domain. How do you make Boku bucks in the midst of the Great Depression light? Profits from the S&P 500 are up 38% from last year, the sixth highest quarterly total ever. It would be a good thing if those behemoths had raked in all that scratch by selling a whole lot of widgets or servicing a ton of clients. No way. Since 2008, corporate revenues have shrunk 6% while all those profits were being generated. They did it by magic. Not black magic, but pink magic. Corporate America is making out like the moral bandit it is by firing people right and left and outsourcing every job it can possibly deport. The nation is awash in pink. The 77,000 job hires in September couldn't compensate for the final exit of the census takers, another 10 years before that stimulus returns, and the regular growth of the labor force. So the unemployment upticks to 97 Simultaneously, the Fed has hammered the prime rate down to 99-cent store proportions, so the same companies handing out the pinks are borrowing oodles of green for next to nothing. The country's mega-businesses are hoarding $1.6 trillion of cash, while small businesses and households can't borrow a dime. Not a recipe for prosperity in any economic cookbook I've read. It all comes down to the flow of capital, the lifeblood of our national economy. If corporate America continues to squat on its cash instead of investing it in we the people, and if the federal government continues to squander our treasure abroad instead of investing it in we the people, then that lifeblood will not flow and our economy will go into shock. We're all about turning the federal government upside down. Why not the corporations? They're only a legal fiction. The corporate veil can be pierced with the stroke of a pen. Make the board of directors and the major shareholders personally responsible for the careers they terminate and the jobs they smuggle abroad. That just might put us back in the pink. From AOL's Daily Finance... One day after the demise in Congress of legislation that would have protected net neutrality, an issue that's important to all of us, the principle that broadband providers shouldn't play favorites with web content, all eyes have turned back to the Federal Communications Commission, which is under mounting pressure to act on the issue. Supporters of net neutrality have urged FCC Chairman Julius Janachowski to reclassify broadband from a Title I information service to a Title II communication service, which would give the commission the authority it needs to enforce net neutrality. The broadband companies have vigorously opposed such a move, saying it could lead to price controls and runaway litigation, while supporters argue that net neutrality is necessary to ensure innovation uh, on the Internet. Of course the companies don't want net neutrality. They want to be able to charge. They want to be able to squeeze this wheeze. 
Last Thursday, Senator Byron Dorgan urged the FCC, which has been caught in jurisdictional limbo ever since a federal judge ruled in April that the agency lacked the authority to enforce net neutrality, to reclassify broadband. While I appreciate all the work that has been done in the House on net neutrality, I continue to believe that the best way to preserve the free and open internet is for the FCC to act now to reclassify broadband under Title II, Dorgan said. And on Wednesday, Henry Waxman, another of my men, Chairman of the House Energy and Commerce Committee announced that Republicans, led by Ranking Committee member Joe Barton, had refused to support a compromise bill that would have prevented phone and cable companies from discrimination against legal web content while also protecting them from the threat of reclassification for two years. A reasonable compromise. No, they said, because that's all they can do. They're these dolls. You pull a string on a Republican congressman and all you get is no. Pull it again. No. Are you the doll that can only say no? No. This development is a loss for consumers and a gain only for the extremes, Waxman said in a statement. We need to break the deadlock on net neutrality so that we can focus on building the most open and robust internet possible. It has a lot to do with our economic future. We all know that. So much business, so much communication is turning to the net. It has to be free. It has to be open. If our efforts to find bipartisan consensus fail, the FCC should move forward under Title II, Waxman added. This is not a solution for the future of the Internet, Barton added. America should be about preserving the vibrant and competitive free market. This lies about the free market. It's not free. He wants monopolies. He, he, the competitive free market that exists for the Internet and other interactive computer services unfettered by federal or state regulation. My, my, I'm so tired of all this posturing and lying. And here comes the old free market again, right? Nothing free about it, of course, just an opportunity, you know, to push their propaganda and make unnecessary profits. Barry Diller, chairman of the web conglomerate IAC, strongly urged companies that operate on the internet to back net neutrality. Quote, all of you have to get out there and start arguing for this strongly, Diller said during remarks at the TechCrunch Disrupt Conference. It is the lives of you all and the people coming after you. We have to protect them. Thank you, Barry. The New York Times tells us that happy hour beers were going for five bucks at Past Perfect, a cavernous bar just off this city's strip of honky-tonks and tourist shops, where Adam Ringenberg walked in with a loaded 9mm pistol in his front pocket of his gray slacks. This is in Nashville, I believe. Mr. Ringenberg, a technology consultant, is one of the state's nearly 300,000 handgun permit holders who have recently seen their rights greatly expanded by a new law, one of the nation's first, that allows them to carry loaded firearms into bars and restaurants that serve alcohol. If someone's sticking a gun in my face, I'm not relying on their charity to keep me alive, said Mr. Ringenberg, 30, who said he carries the gun for personal protection when he is not at work. Gun right advocates like Mr. Ringenberg may applaud the new law, but many customers, waiters, and restaurateurs here are dismayed by the decision. That's not cool in my book, Art Anderson, 44, said as he nursed a Coors Light at Sam's Sports Bar and Grill near Vanderbilt University. It opens the door to trouble. It's giving you the right to be Wyatt Earp. Tennessee is one of four states, along with Arizona, why am I not surprised, Arizona, Georgia, and Virginia, that recently enacted laws explicitly allowing loaded guns in bars. 
18 other states allow weapons in restaurants that serve alcohol. The new measures in Tennessee and the three other states come after two landmark Supreme Court rulings that citizens have an individual right, not just in connection with a well-regulated militia, to keep a loaded handgun for home defense. Hey, but are you at home in a bar? Some people are. Experts say these laws represent the latest wave in the country's gun debate as the gun lobby seeks state by state to expand the realm of guns in everyday life. State Representative Curry Todd, a Republican who first introduced the guns in bars bill here, said that carrying a gun inside a tavern was never the law's primary intention. Rather, he said the law lets people defend themselves while walking to and from restaurants. But no, I'm walking and I'm carrying, I'm in the bar, I'm carrying, I'm leaving the bar, I'm carrying. You know what it comes down to, buddy? Hey, I'm carrying. Folks were being robbed, assaulted. It was becoming an issue of personal safety, said Mr. Todd, who added that the National Rifle Association had aided his legislative efforts. The police aren't going to be able to protect you. They're going to be checking out the crime scene after you and your family's been shot or injured or assaulted or raped or all at once. Under Tennessee's new law, gun permit holders are not supposed to drink alcohol while carrying their weapons. Yeah, uh-huh. Mr. Ringenberg washed down his steak sandwich with a Coke. But critics of the law say the provision is no guarantee of safety, pointing to a recent shooting in, a, in Virginia where a customer who had a permit to carry a concealed weapon shot himself in the leg while drinking beer at a restaurant. <laughs> That'll take him out of the game for a while. Guns and alcohol don't mix. That's the bottom line, said Michael Drescher, a spokesman for Governor Paul Bredesen of Tennessee, a Democrat who vetoed the bill but was overridden by the legislature. They'll let anybody in the legislature. Down at Bobby's Idle Hour, I'll bet you there's more people hanging at Bobby's Idle Hour now, now that there's more idle and more hours in the day, however. Mike Gideon said he did not believe that guns and bars were unsafe. As he sipped a beer in the fading afternoon light, Mr. Gideon, who characterized his 19-gun collection as serious, probably the only serious thing in his life, said that having a few permit holders around made any public space safer and that he boycotts any business that does not allow him to carry a weapon. Wow, what a nice narrow life he leads. People who have gun permits have the cleanest records around, said Mr. Gideon, 54. The guy that's going to do the bad thing, he's not worried about the law at all. The no gun sign just says to him, hey, buddy, smooth sailing. To me, a no-gun sign says, hey, buddy, nobody's carrying, nobody's going to shoot themselves in the leg, and you along with it, I can certainly live with that. Yeah, at the opening of the show, Dave, uh, you mentioned at the very end as we were going through the horror list of who's out there about uh, the Republican candidate for the New York governor, Carl Palladino. Right. Carl Big mouth, let me send you my uh, email address because I got some real pictures you want to look at, huh? Yeah, yeah him, right? Him, okay. and, and, and for ex- just to start off with, America seems to have 
Very little hypocrisy meter turned on during, for this midterms. <laughs> that's one way of putting it. <laughs> really? I mean, these people can say anything. Here's yep, a guy yep. that says, I'm not an insider, and all he is is a graph-ridden insider in Buffalo politics. A payoff man, a bag man, a wealthy man, all of this stuff, however you want to say it. But he's, you know, he just claims the other way, and that's enough. All you got to do is say it, and if you get the right people to swing it and to spin it and whatever, you're fine. But, of course, he has to be caught by what he actually says in public. (laughs) Carl Palladino, the Republican candidate for New York governor, says he can't decide whether homosexuality is a choice. Like we should leave it up to him, okay? It's my decision, all right? So shut up and sit down. I've had difficulty with that, he told Uh Good Morning America this week. My nephew tells me he didn't have that choice. And I believe it's a very, very difficult life for a young person. He went on, I believe that young people should not necessarily be exposed to that, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. without some really, really mature background first before so they can learn to deal with it. This is a man who wants to be governor of New York, running against Cuomo, who is an eloquent young man. So he's not sure that they should be exposed to what? To the idea of homosexuality? To discovering that they're homosexual? Well, he said that uh, the gay gay pride parade was not an appropriate event for children. You can make up yourself what you think that means. The candidate, and he's backed by the Tea Party. This is the Tea Party that says they aren't I have trouble taking my kids to the Irish one. Go go ahead, Pete. You have to make your choice. St. Patty's. Days got a lot of, you know, well, go ahead. The candidate backed by the Tea Party, 71% of all Republicans say that they are in the Tea Party. 50% of the people in America now identify themselves as conservative. The candidate backed by the Tea Party is under fire for telling Orthodox Jewish leaders at a campaign stop this week that he didn't want his kids to be brainwashed into thinking that homosexuality is an equally valid and successful option. It isn't. So don't watch television because all those shows with gay people on it are brainwashing your teenagers. Right, Excuse and, me. And, 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 and don't pay attention to the fact that now a federal judge in, in San Diego has said that don't ask, don't tell is unconstitutional. Don't listen to any of this. Now, by the way, the guy that put this this whole thing together for him, one of the, the leaders of the Orthodox Jewish community in New York, He's a rabbi with a congregation of 24 people. Oh, that's, no. That's, Another one of those like the burn like the burn the Quran guy. Well, right, yeah, except he's got yeah. a minion and that's just about it. All right, let's go on. We got we got more Paladino here. Let me just get it up here for you. Okay. <clears> this is, okay. Uh he his prepared text went further. There is nothing to be proud of in being a dysfunctional homosexual. But he didn't say that in his remarks. The Republican says he was reading the speech in his car on the way to the event and simply crossed the sentence out. How we learned about it, I don't know. But there it is. He says there is nothing to be proud of in being a dysfunctional homosexual. Or maybe this is a motivational talk. If you're going to be a homosexual, be a functional homosexual. Functional one. Yeah, keep your functions up, Yeah, uh, so to speak. Paladino stresses that his feelings are no different than those of the Catholic Church. And he was merely trying to express the confusion that people have over this issue. A lot of people are not confused about this issue. No, especially not in New York. Well, maybe in 
Buffalo. Well, I mean, talk about talk about a rapid change. We did the article on the fact that the definition of two gays as a real family has taken hold. The whole idea of what makes a family, including, oh, yeah. has changed remarkably and quickly. So no, Mr. Palladino, a lot of people are not confused about homosexuality. The fact that it is not a choice. No, you can't pray it out of people, Mr. Palladino. And the last thing in the world we want is you with this antediluvian bigotry being governor of New York. Mr. Bergman, I can see that you were a victim, a cruel, cruel, poor victim of the homosexual agenda, and I feel sorry for you, okay? This is Carl Palladino, and I, I, I approve that message. Yeah, this one's from the Daily Beast. An Indiana University survey has come along to put some confirming data on the faked orgasm phenomena. The survey found that 85% of men said their partners climaxed during the most recent sex act, while 64% of women reported they actually did. Now, let's see. That's 21% of the women were faking it. There's this massive gap between men's perception and women's reality, says Debbie Habernick, co-author of the research and associate director of the Center for Sexual Health Promotion at the university. It shows a lack of communication between partners, either by women faking it or by men not asking or noticing if their partners climaxed. Probably a rich combination of both. The survey, which drew on data from nearly 6,000 participants between the ages of 14 and 94, covered a wide range of sexual behaviors, sexual health practices, and sexual perceptions. And according to the center, it was the largest nationally representative survey on sexual health ever performed. Yeah, and it also came up with all kinds of other interesting information I've been reading, which is the definition of a sexual act has broadened remarkably among people, particularly in the areas of oral sex. So you've got Oral sex is growing, but women are, are faking it. I mean, you know, it's the it's the same old same. Guys just won't believe it, man. They just don't take the time to find out what women are all about. This from Newsweek. China's fiercest anti-ship missile, designed by Russia and dubbed the Sizzler by NATO, has a 300-kilometer range and accelerates to roughly three times the speed of sound as it nears its target. The Sizzler can reach farther and fly faster than the West's top anti-ship missiles, America's Harpoon and France's Exocet. Oh, my, oh, my. And, of course, count on Russia to build it and sell it to anybody. They've sold sizzlers to India and possibly Iran and Syria and Algeria have expressed interest, widening the threat. Everyone in the Western world is wondering how you defeat it, says John Patch, a professor at the U.S. Army War College. Yeah, man, watch out. Here comes the sizzler. China sees missiles such as the Sizzler and a missile currently in development known as the Dongfeng DF-21D. I like Sizzler better. As key to its growing naval power in Asia, the Sizzler can be launched from submarines even when submerged, which could turn part of China's subfleet from a manageable threat to a very problematic one, says Patch. The DF-21D, a ground-launched ballistic missile, they should call it the dim sum, 
really. The DF-21D, a ground-launched ballistic missile with a 1,500-kilometer range, is being redesigned by China to dive from space, traveling at about 2 kilometers per second to cripple an aircraft carrier. As of today, the U.S. has no reliable countermeasures. With the DF-21D likely to be ready for a flight test in two years or less, the West is suddenly regarding China's anti-ship capabilities as pretty daunting, says Eric McVarden, a former U.S. Navy Rear Admiral and Defense Attaché to Beijing. Wow, yeah. Watch out, man. You got the sizzler coming across the water and you got the dim sum coming out of space. We in trouble. We in deep fried trouble. China's new missile technology comes at a time when tensions between Washington and Beijing are decidedly strained, and when the U.S. Navy has never been so threatened by weapons systems since the end of the Cold War. In May, U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert Gates expressed reluctance to build new carriers, pointing to the growing range and accuracy of the anti-ship missiles of potential adversaries. For its part, Beijing is likely to continue to beef up its missile capabilities and already boasts the world's most active ground launch programs, according to a recent Department of Defense report. Now, China has shown no desire whatsoever to rule the world, but this makes defense of the Chinese mainland very, very realistic. But China's missile program could backfire by driving rattled neighbors like Malaysia, the Philippines, Singapore, and Thailand to request closer naval cooperation with the U.S., says Ramil Nik, a former Malaysian defense attaché to the United Nations. By talking tough while developing formidable anti-ship weapons, China is undercutting its own goal of keeping America out of its region, says Paul Giara, a former Asia expert in the office of the Secretary of Defense. Much, however, depends on the American response, the experts say. To maintain its credibility as a reliable shield in the Asia-Pacific, the U.S. Navy needs an answer to China's new generation of anti-ship missiles. Hey, ships are ducks sitting ducks. They are fish in a barrel floating on the top of the ocean. Hello, Ozineers. That's what I call the couple grand of you who every day download this show and put it in your ears. I have a favor, okay? I'm looking for some of you to help us promote Radio Free Oz on Twitter. This is one of the ways we're going to market this show and monetize it. We have just set up our new Twitter account. We'd love to connect with you. All you need to do is go to twitter.com slash oznetwork and click the follow button. See ya. From the folds of the gray lady. As many households and small businesses are being turned away by bank loan officers, large corporations are borrowing vast sums of money for next to nothing, simply because they can. Companies like Microsoft are raising billions of dollars by issuing bonds at ultra-low interest rates, but few of them are actually spending the money on new factories, equipment, or jobs. Instead, they are stockpiling the cash until the economy improves. Oh, that's good. Bargain basement money available to super corporations. You know, I remember when I was studying economics in college, uh, companies borrowed money in order to invest in productive facilities and to create new jobs, not to just sit on it. The development presents something of a chicken and egg situation except there aren't any chickens and eggs in anybody's pot anymore. Corporations keep saving, waiting for the economy to perk up, but the economy is unlikely to perk up if the corporations keep saving. That doesn't sound so good to me. That is a situation I don't know what to do with. 
This situation underscores the limits of Washington policymakers' power to stimulate the economy. Yeah, they can't go in, for example, and say, hoarded money is unproductive. We are going to, we are going to subject it to a murderous tax rate. The Federal Reserve has held official interest rates near zero for almost two years, which allows corporations to sell bonds with only slightly higher returns, even below 1%. But most companies are not doing what the easy money policy was intended to get them to do, invest and create jobs. That's because they have no conscience. They have no social conscience. And they're getting away with it. The Fed's low rates have, in fact, hurt many Americans, especially retirees, whose incomes from savings have fallen substantially. Big companies like Johnson & Johnson, PepsiCo, and IBM seem to have been among the major beneficiaries. Well, I'm so glad for them because they need it so badly. American corporations have been saving more money since the financial collapse of 2008. But a recent rush of blue-chip bond offerings, including a $4.75 billion deal last month by Microsoft, yeah, one of the richest companies in the world has put even more money in their coffers. Corporations now sit atop a combined $1.6 trillion of cash, a figure equal to slightly more than 6% of their total assets. In the first quarter of this year, it was 6.2% of assets, the highest level since 1964 when it was 6.4%. When will they start spending the money? In particular, by hiring. That is part of what has become the great question of this long jobless recovery. When will corporate America start to feel confident enough to put its cash to work, building factories and putting some of the nation's 14.9 million unemployed to work? Well, that's a real question when you consider that a lot of these corporations are being run by bean counters who don't know a widget from Waziristan, who don't know how to put a spring in a clock, right? All they know how to do is crunch numbers and cheat. The cheap money may be having yet another effect, unintended by the policymakers eager to cut the nation's 9.6% unemployment rate. Excuse me, that has dinged up to 9.7. Several of the corporations borrowing billions on bond markets are using the money to put their own financial house in order rather than to create jobs. Microsoft said it was using some of the money to buy back shares. Other companies are locking in longer-term borrowing, and some of the new borrowing is, is, is financing an increase in mergers and acquisitions, which means fewer jobs when you merge you throw half the people out and you give half the service and make twice the money. Ah, ain't capitalism great. All of this may enrich the corporation's shareholders and cut company costs in the long run, but it does not necessarily lead to more jobs and it does not represent the big investments in growth that could fuel a sharp economy recovery for everyone. Uh-huh. Well, do the corporations care? Okay, do they really care? Don't they just wake up in the morning and take a look at what they call the bottom line? Well, I think maybe they ought to take a look. Maybe their bottom line needs some wiping. What's that all about? What's it all about, Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Smith from Anytown, USA? Well, it's about this long. And about that wide. And it's about this country. About which we're singing about. Yeah, a while ago, we did a wonderful piece together, David, called More Salt on Your Damp Dog, which I revived in, in a recent show about what's, that, that fast food only tastes the way it does because of salt. Otherwise, it tastes like damp dog damp hair. Damp dog hair. Yeah, right. Okay, well, this is new. This is, this is all part of our fast look at fast food. Okay. 
looking almost, from the Daily Beast, by the way, looking mm-hmm. almost as fresh as the day it was bought, this McDonald's Happy Meal is, in fact, a staggering six months old. Photographed every day for the past half year by a Manhattan artist, Sally Davies, the kid's meal of fries and a burger is without a hint of mold or decay. No, six, yeah. six months? Entitled The Happy Meal Project, Mrs. Davies, 54, has charted the seemingly indestructible fast food meal's uh, progress as it refuses to yield to the forces of nature. Sitting on a shelf in her apartment, Sally has watched the Happy Meal with increasing shock, and even her dogs have resisted the urge to try and steal a free, tasty snack. Dogs don't even want it. I bought the meal on April 10th of this year and brought it home with the express intention of leaving it out to see how it fared, she said. I chose McDonald's because it was nearest to my house, but the project could have been about any of the other myriad of fast food joints in New York. Maybe not. McDonald's maybe may, not. Maybe, maybe McDonald's yeah, yeah, has something yeah. special here. The first thing that struck me on day two of the experiment was that it no longer emitted any smell. So uh-huh. it goes odorless in uh-huh. a day. Well, that's because the odor is all provided with a shot of chemical, right? Just Absolutely. before it hits the hits the table, you know. Which then evaporated yeah. into our house. Yeah, yeah. Expecting the food to begin molding after a few days, Mrs. Davies' surprise turned to shock as the fries and burger still had not shown any sign of decomposition after two weeks. And there are pictures of this on the Daily Beast, and except for a tiny, I mean an almost minuscule amount of shivering of the, slivering and shivering of the bun and, uh, and of the meat, there's no change. Basically, you can't tell one day from another. Day one, day 180, same thing. Mm. It was then that I realized, said Miss Davies, that something strange might be going on with this food that I had bought, she said. The fries shriveled slightly, as did the burger patty, but the overall appearance of the food did not change as the weeks turned to months. And now, at six months old, the food is plastic to the touch and has an acrylic sheen to it. The only change that I can see is that it has become hard as a rock. <laughs> no, no. Yes, yes, yes. Now imagine, oh. imagine what it does in your intestines. Hell, because, because I some, mean, my burger is undead. <laughs> why hasn't even the bun become speckled with mold? Oh, it's no. odd. When asked if their food was not biodegradable, it appears that their food is not biodegradable, David. McDonald's spokeswoman, Danya Proud, said, This is nothing more than an outlandish claim and is completely false. Oh, that, that's what thanks, they got. Yolanda. We'll be, we'll, be, we'll be back to you in a minute. But, of course, McDonald's yeah. is now looking at, an, I think this is major. I mean, basically, because other people are going to leave their happy meals out to find yep. out just how happy they remain. And if, indeed, they all remain the same, lose their smell after a day, have an acrylic sheen, and become hard as a rock, and becomes untasty even to the hungriest dogs, they got a real problem on their hands. Yeah, no kidding. Attack of the undead Happy Meals. <laughs> it's, just, it's just too much to believe. And, and yet, <clears throat> you think about it, McDonald's is based almost entirely on chemical research. Well, if there's enough salt... For okay. one thing, and sugar, it will preserve it. That's right? true. Honey preserves the the mummies, right? So I'm pretty sure it's salt, salt and, sugar. and sugar content because there's tons keep it. of salt and sugar in the bun. People don't realize how much sugar yeah, there yeah, is. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, so it's salt and sugar. The acrylic sheen. Well, <laughs> maybe the, something we haven't dealt with. That's yet. the sugar sort of getting that acrylic <laughs> sheen. It gets when it doesn't get old. It just gets hard, <laughs> like me. <laughs> oh, Pete. 
The flaming hulks of NATO fuel trucks stretching from the AFPAC border to Islamabad cast a baleful light on the shadow war we have been waging in Pakistan. Understand, the Taliban thugs who torch those tankers have the sympathy of every Pakistani whose lives are threatened daily by the rain of hellfire missiles. In the last month, the Pentagon and the CIA have more than doubled their predator attacks over Pakistan. Their stated rationale? They need to beef up their boogeyman body count before the White House does their reassessment of the whole AFPAC adventure. It's time we made our reassessment. One, what can we accomplish by putting boots on the ground and drones in the air in Pakistan? The Taliban and a broad range of other hardline Islamist groups are standard fare in a country that was founded as a breakaway Islamic haven. Two, what real help can we expect from the Pakistani army, government, or security services? For decades, they have been using us, lying to us, and supporting the warlords and jihadists who have been killing us. Three, what have our incursions into Pakistan accomplished except to increase the risk of terrorist attacks against our homeland? The Times Square car bomber was provoked by our predator strikes. He is not alone. Four, what level of blood and treasure will we have to pour into Pakistan to make a difference? 100,000 troops and $2 billion a week isn't doing the job in Afghanistan. Five, what's the end game? Will it take the head of bin Laden, a feminist Taliban, an opium-free Afghanistan, and textbook democracies from Baghdad to Baluchistan to satisfy us? Can't we just pack up the American dream and come home? If we answer these questions and choose to act, we have a shot at turning the madness around. If not, we can join the drones at home, follow our leaders, and pay the parking meters. Buddy, can you spare a dime? Byron Williams, a 45-year-old ex-felon, exploded onto the national stage in the early morning hours of July 18th. According to a police investigation, Williams opened fire on California Highway Patrol officers who had stopped him on an Oakland freeway for driving erratically. For 12 frantic minutes, Williams traded shots with the police, employing three firearms and a small arsenal of ammunition, including armor-piercing rounds fired from a .308 caliber rifle. When the smoke cleared, Williams surrendered. The ballistic body armor he was wearing had saved his life. Miraculously, only two of the 10 CHP officers involved in the shootout were injured. In an affidavit, an Oakland police investigator reported that during an interview at the hospital, Williams stated that his intention was to start a revolution by traveling to San Francisco and killing people of importance at the Tides Foundation and the ACLU. Fifteen years after militia movement-inspired bombers killed 168 people in the Oklahoma City Federal Building, right-wing domestic terror plots are a fact of life in America. Since 2008, violent extremists, many of them who subscribe to the hate speech and conspiratorial fantasies of the conservative media, have murdered churchgoers in Knoxville, police officers in Pittsburgh, and an abortion provider in Wichita. Conspiracy theory-fueled extremism has long been a reaction to progressive government in the United States. Half a century ago, historian Richard Hofstetter wrote that right-wing thought had come to be dominated by the belief that communist agents had infiltrated all levels of American government and society. 
The right, he explained, had identified a sustained conspiracy running over more than a generation and reaching its climax in Roosevelt's New Deal to undermine free capitalism, to bring the economy under the direction of the federal government, and to pave the way for socialism or communism. And boy, this is the line perhaps this line light, being taken by a lot of the Tea Party people running for the Senate and the House. This kind of conspiracy drivel, this is serious stuff. And a dumb, over-TV-exposed, lazy public is swallowing this crap. In a 2009 report, the Southern Poverty Law Center found that the anti-government militia movement which had risen to importance during the Clinton administration, had faded away during the Bush years. It has returned. According to the SPLC, the anti-government resurgence has been buttressed by paranoid rhetoric from public officials like Republican Congresswoman Michelle Bachman and media figures like Fox News' Glenn Beck. Just last month, Gregory Giusti pleaded guilty to repeatedly threatening House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, including threatening to destroy her California home because he was upset with her passing the health care law. Well, no surprise since the right-wing people have been saying this is the end of health care in America, this is socialism, he's Stalin, he's Che, he's, he's Castro, he's Mao. They believe these sons of bitches. His mother told a local news station that he frequently gets in with a group of people that have really radical ideas, adding, I'd say Fox News or all of those that are really radical, and he, he, that, that's where he comes from. After the 2008 election, Fox News personalities filled the airwaves with increasingly violent rhetoric and apocalyptic language. On his Fox News show, Beck talked about putting poison in Pelosi's wine. Observers of the most recent act were mystified by one of Byron Williams's reported targets, the Tides Foundation, a low-profile charitable organization known for funding environmentalists, community groups, and other organizations. Beck, it turned out, had attacked Tides 29 times on his Fox News show in the year and a half leading up to the shooting. I'm all for free speech, yeah, but... What's the difference between yelling fire in a crowded theater, right, or yelling socialist murderer end of the world on a crowded cable network? The TV man spoke of death on some coast. I saw the crumbling debris It dealt me a blow But I'm thankful to know That it could never happen to me I am standing on motionless land A constant under my feet God for walls and a roof overhead It could never happen to me I feel for the poor folks who wander the streets In search of their daughters and sons It's sad there are people with nothing to eat But I'm thankful I'll never be
fought to be free. No one deserves to be homeless alone, but it could never happen to me. I've lived my life righteous and wise. I've chosen my path carefully. Someone just has to be smiling on high, 'cause it could never happen to me. No, I'm not without flaws, and I've suffered through loss. I've got problems away on my mind. I've got bills to pay and a son on the way, so I've gotta save every. So far from my door, as if tragedy lives overseas. I wish I could help, but I'm glad for myself that it could never happen to me. It could never happen to me. Talking points memo: Chinese Nobel Peace Laureate Liu Xiaobo has tearfully dedicated his award to victims of the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown. Activists said as his wife was held under house arrest on Monday. Don't you just love those Chinese? They don't care about spinning their public relations. All they want is total control of the people. This award is for the lost souls of June 4th. The U.S.-based group. Human rights in China quoted Liu Xiaobo as telling his wife Liu Xia, referring to the bloody June fourth, nineteen eighty nine crackdown on democracy protests at the vast Beijing Square. I've been there, by the way. It is huge. You can't imagine the scale of Beijing. Everything is at least twice as large as you would expect it. I didn't go into Mao's tomb because I don't visit the resting place of mass murderers. I happened to be in in Tiananmen Square when it was almost just empty, and there would be occasionally a a an army guard standing there, not with a rifle but a fire extinguisher. I learned later that was to put out people who set themselves on fire in protest. It's a great country. The 54-year-old writer, this is Yobo, who was jailed for 11 years in December after authoring a bold petition calling for democratic reforms, was awarded the prize by the Oslo-based committee Friday, sparking a furious reaction from Beijing. Leaders around the world, including U.S. President Barack Obama, last year's Nobel Peace Prize winner, lauded. The 2010 winner and called on the Chinese government to release him immediately. Tibet's exiled spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1989, also on Monday criticized China's irate response. The Dalai Lama told Kyoto News during a stopover at Tokyo's Narita Airport that the Chinese government does not appreciate different opinions at all. Yeah, Dalai, that's putting it lightly. 
He also said building an open and transparent society is the only way to save all people of China, but that some hardliners inside the leadership were stuck in an old way of thinking. Via her Twitter account, Liu Jia said she had been placed under house arrest at her Beijing home both before and after traveling to the prison in northeastern China where her husband is being held to inform him of his prize. Brothers, she said, I have returned home. On the 8th of October, they placed me under house arrest. I don't know when I will be able to see anyone, said the Sunday night Twitter. My mobile phone has been broken and I cannot call or receive calls. I saw Jiabo and told him on the 9th at the prison that he won the prize. I will let you know more later. Everyone, please help me retweet. Thanks, she said. Yeah, don't retreat on this one. Retweet. Liu Jiabo's wife was taken to the prison under police guard, his lawyer said at the weekend. At least two dozen police, plainclothes officers, and other security personnel were soon deployed Monday at the compound where Liu Jia lives, interrogating returning residents and preventing journalists from entering. It's a police state, buddy. Next time you go out and buy one of them fine Chinese trinkets or some of them fine hijack TV programs or games or whatever you're buying, just think about Liu Jia and think of Jia Bo up there in prison for 11 years for just calling for human rights. Calls to her mobile phone were met with a recording saying it was out of service. Liu Jiabo is the first Chinese citizen to win the Peace Prize issued by the Oslo-based Nobel Committee, and China immediately lashed out at the award, calling it blasphemy and labeling Liu a criminal. These people are... I just can't stand them. China has summoned the Norwegian ambassador to warn him that it would damage relations and on Monday canceled a scheduled Wednesday meeting between a Norwegian fisheries minister and a Chinese vice minister. <laughs> well, let me tell you, China, you know, the fish starts to rot both the head and the tail in your country, and you're going to get caught in the middle. China's censors have mounted an effort to prevent news of the award circulating on the internet in China, and searchers on the subject remain blocked Monday. And what a great country! Uh, Liu, a former university professor, helped negotiate the safe exit from Tiananmen Square of thousands of student demonstrators before military tanks crushed the six weeks of peaceful protests in the heart of Beijing. He has spent much of the intervening period in jail, under house arrest or other restrictions, but has continued to seek the release of those jailed due to the protests. He was last jailed following the publication of Charter 08, a manifesto calling for democracy and human rights that was signed by hundreds of Chinese activists and then thousands more after it was circulated online. Liu dedicated his award to Tiananmen victims to honor their nonviolent spirit in giving their lives for peace, freedom, and democracy. Liu Jia was quoted as saying by human rights in China. She said her husband was moved to tears as he discussed the subject, according to the group. During the one-hour meeting, Liu asked his wife to represent him at the Nobel Award ceremony in December, the Hong Kong-based Information Center for Human Rights and Democracy said in a statement. It was not immediately clear if Chinese authorities would allow her to attend. If they don't allow her to attend the Nobel ceremony for her husband's Peace Prize, I think we ought to do a full boycott China Day. Maybe a full boycott China month. That doesn't mean we won't be reading Tang Chinese poetry on Oz, because that's like, you know, 1,500 years ago. I'm talking about the oppression right now.
Well, Peter, I'm back again today because it's the middle of October, and I mean the comedians' birthdays come thick and fast. Not all these people are comedians. I, they, I, I, I love all these folks because some way they stir the comic soul. Whether so they join the comedy calendar. That's it. Well, the first one is a poet, E. E. Cummings, born oh, funny on, man on the 14th, and as funny a guy as you can uh, ever read a poem by. I, I mean, that some, of, yeah. If you're going to get a chuckle out of a poem, E. E. Cummings is a good candidate. I saw him read once, and he curled up his mouth and read those lines. Yeah, there's a hell of a good world next door. Let's go. He was a great guy. I can't do that Boston accent, but uh, what a funny, funny writer. Same day, the 14th, uh, today, uh, Harry Anderson. Oh. Our friend from Night Court and uh, Dave's World, uh, magician, actor. I first met him when Proctor and I hired him to open for us in Austin, Texas. And he came out in this big velvet robe, opened it, and there was this sparkles came out and everything. What a what a lovely man. What a lovely, <laughs> lovely man. And I got to tell you what's happening on the weekend, too, because it'll be best of on Friday. And that day, well, we can celebrate some TV favorites. Uh, the debut of I Love Lucy. Oh, man. That, one of my favorite shows. That was on the 15th of October, back at the, when uh, TV had seasons, right? right? 15th of October, 1951 on I CBS. Probably, I probably saw the show. She made me laugh. You know, I've been thinking about Lucy and about the life we live today. And the thing that was so good about that show, it was so unpretentious. It wasn't about living better. It wasn't about objects that you had. It was strictly about kind of getting by as a married couple and being wacky. But there was, it was not at all uh, the world of materialism that that we live in today. Even when when supermodels go around picking up fibers in these forensic shows, they're (laughs) totally dressed and everywhere they go is stylish. Nothing stylish about Lucy, although a a former um, model. One of the most beautiful. beautiful. Oh my God. Yes, I have a picture of her when she was in her... uh, Goldwyn girl phase, oh, and she's as beautiful as any Hollywood star, no question about but it. But like Sandra Bullock, she learned to take a fall and became famous. That's right. Yep. That's right. On, uh, let's see, Saturday, well, Oscar Wilde. How, oh. how bigger a comedian can you get? Uh, playwright uh, and, uh, well, I mean, the importance of so being, being earnest. One of the funniest plays in the world. There you go. And he wrote it in a very short period of time. I Someone think. says he's an orphan and he says to him, losing one parent is a tragedy. Losing two parents is sheer carelessness. <laughs> yes. And on the same day, uh, that's uh, the 16th, uh, uh, was a, a released a, a, a number one comedy record. It doesn't happen very often. This was Disco Duck by Rick Dees and his cast of idiots. Yeah. The comedy cut hit number one in 1976. And it made his career. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> that was it. One hit favorite. And on Sunday, uh, three very funny guys. Jerry Colonna. Oh, yeah. If you can remember him. Yep. He was a uh, frequent Bob Hope. Uh, sidekick, yep. uh, and uh, he, his, his, he was born way back in 1904, so he, Jerry Colonna has been gone a long time, but who could forget what he said when he, his entering line was, greetings, gate! <laughs> For whatever that Just means. Just love it, greetings, gate. And Tom Poston, one of uh, Steve Allen's funny men, really nice guy, usually played a blank. Yes. <laughs> Just a blank, yeah. you know? Yeah. And finally, Michael McKean. From the Credibility Gap, Spinal Tap, born on the 17th in 1947. One of the uh, younger comedians in my comedy calendar this week. Yes, and a good man.
This is an op-ed piece written by Fang Li Ji in the HuffPost. Fang Li Ji is a dissident physicist widely regarded as China's Sakharov and a mentor to the student protesters at Tiananmen Square in 1989, now lives in exile in the United States where he teaches at the University of Arizona. Before he was expelled from China, he spent over a year in protective custody in the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, where he had fled after the Tiananmen crackdown. Here he speaks. I heartily applaud the Nobel Committee for awarding its peace prize to the imprisoned Liu Jiobo for his long and nonviolent struggle for fundamental human rights in China. In doing so, the committee has challenged the West to re-examine a dangerous notion that has become prevalent since the 1989 Tiananmen massacre, that economic development will inevitably lead to democracy in China. Increasingly, throughout the late 1990s and into the new century, this argument gained sway. Some no doubt believed it. Others perhaps found it convenient for their business interests. Many trusted the top Chinese policymakers who sought to persuade the outside world that if they continued pouring in their investments without an embarrassing linkage to human rights principles, all would get better at China's own pace. More than 20 years have passed since Tiananmen. China has officially become the world's second largest economy. Yet the hardly radical Liu Jiabo and thousands of others rot in jail for merely demanding basic rights enshrined by the UN and taken for granted by all Western investors in their own countries. Apparently, human rights have not inevitably improved despite a soaring economy. Li Jiobo's own experience over the last 20 years ought to be enough evidence on its own to finally demolish any idea that democracy will automatically emerge as a result of growing prosperity. I knew Mr. Liu in the 1980s when he was an outspoken young man. He took part in 1989 in the peaceful protests at Tiananmen Square and was sentenced to two years in prison for his efforts. From then until 1999, he was in and out of labor camps, prisons, detention centers, and house arrest. In 2008, he initiated the Charter 08 petition, calling for China to comply with the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Consequently, he was again arrested, this time sentenced to a particularly harsh 11 years in prison for inciting subversion of state power, even though China is a signatory of the UN Declaration. According to human rights organizations that monitor the situation in China, there are about 1,400 political, religious, and conscience prisoners spread around in prisons or labor camps across China. Their crimes have included membership in underground political or religious groups, independent trade unions, and non-governmental organizations. Or they've been arrested for participating in strikes or demonstrations and have publicly expressed dissenting political opinions. This undeniable reality ought to be a wake-up call to anyone who naively believes the autocratic rulers of China will alter their disregard of human rights just because the country is richer. Regardless of how widely China's leaders have opened its market to the outside world, they have not retreated even half a step from their repressive political creed. The international community should be especially concerned over China's breach of international agreements to which it is a signatory. Besides the UN Declaration of Human Rights, China also signed the UN Convention Against Torture in 1988. Yet torture, maltreatment, and psychiatric manipulation are extensively used in detention and prison camps in China. The bastards. This includes beatings, the use of leg shackles and or handcuffs for prolonged periods, extended solitary confinement, severely inadequate food, extreme exposure to cold and heat, and denial of medical treatment. 
As the power of the regime grows with prosperity, the Communist Party feels confident in its immunity as it violates the strictures of its own constitution. Article 35 of China's constitution, for example, says that citizens of the People's Republic of China enjoy freedom of speech, of assembly, of association, of procession, and of demonstration. Yet, can anyone doubt government's crackdown on these rights, not to speak of regularly blocking the internet, including denying access to a whole swath of China after the incidents between Han and Uyghurs in Western China. Censors can easily locate emails and their authors using selective words like Liu Jiabo and filter them out. As the unfortunate history of Japan during the first half of the 20th century illustrates, a power that marries economic strength and human rights violations is a threat to peace. Thankfully, the courageous Nobel Committee has exposed this link once again in the case of a prospering China. The committee is absolutely right to make a connection between respect for human rights and world peace. As Alfred Nobel so well understood, human rights are the prerequisite for the fraternity between nations. And autumn comes and comes and comes. The light darkens and darkens. And I feel somehow that with the midterm elections coming, you know, and the piranhas already beginning to appear in the pet stores in Washington because they love to swim in the bloodbath, that we, Oz, will burn through this night. We will be your torch. We will be your beacon. And now we're going to leave you today with some more lovely, ancient, although so modern, Chinese poetry. Who we got today, Dave? Yes, indeed. Well, we're going to go back to the Tang or forward uh, to into the past to the Tang Dynasty, which was actually from 618 to 907. Yeah. They had long-lasting ones. And, and this is so a, Dao Chen that we did yesterday, definitely pre-Tang. Oh, yeah, definitely pre-Tang. But, but I bet you our Tang boys read him. Hey, Li Po is right Li Po on. is back. He's ready for this. Drinking alone beneath the moon. Ooh. Two selections. That's two drinks. This is a two drink box. It's happy hour with Lipo. That's right. You got it. A pot of wine among the flowers. I drink alone, no kith or kin near. I raise my cup to invite the moon to join me. It and my shadow make a party of three. Alas, the moon is unconcerned about drinking and my shadow merely follows me around. Briefly I cavort with the moon in my shadow. Pleasure must be sought while it is spring. I sing and the moon goes back and forth. I dance and my shadow falls at random. While sober we seek pleasure and fellowship. When drunk we go each our own way. Then let us pledge a friendship without human ties, and meet again at the far end of the Milky Way. Whoa, I feel sometimes like I'm at the far end of the Milky Way, Davo. I'm really out there do. with you, Pete. Oh, it's been beautiful being with you all across the web. Isn't it amazing? And we'll be amazing again when we see you next time on Radio Free Office.